I'm so glad that you're here this morning. And thank you for being a part of this. So we're teaching a little series that's been entitled Passages Worth the Dig. And last week I was scolded by Dale Hearn and others because he didn't, and my wife did not like the opening slide of my PowerPoint. So if we could pull up my PowerPoint and put it on screen, we'll see if I got any better this week. But we don't have it up on screen. It's coming. It's really coming. Meanwhile, did y'all hear the one about the lawyer who goes into church? Um, Ah, there it is. Thanks. Okay. Passages worth the dig. See, this was last week's. That's this week. Now, aside from the fact that last week we had the woman looks like she's chopping into God's word. Though I told my wife, I said, that's a pick. She's picking God's word. My wife said, no, it just doesn't look right. So then we go to this one this week. Well, now that shows it takes two men to do the work of one woman. So I figure that's a start, right? Anyway, how many like A or B? How many A? B. Oh, Dale Hearn. Uh, okay, well, that's a sign that A's really bad if B is bad. All right. So as I was getting ready for the lesson this week and as I was sitting there on the keyboard banging it out, I, I was thinking about the keyboard itself. I don't know how, how many of you can type. Wow. Yeah, okay. <laughs> One word an hour, Miss Carolyn. How many of you can type without looking? Okay, y'all amaze me. Can I just say y'all are amazing? Yeah, Brent can do it. It's just not right when he does it. Here's my problem. I, I type, but I have to look at the keyboard. And even looking at the keyboard, I run into troubles. But I can't look up at the screen. I can't look at something while I'm typing. And the problem with the keyboard on the Apple keyboard, that shift key to get a capital letter is real close to the capital lock key. So I have, uh, you know, I have sound. We didn't hook up the sound. Not that it matters. It's not worth it. Not that it matters. But I have often hit that shift key for like a capital I and then proceeded to type sentence after sentence after sentence, sometimes paragraphs without realizing it's all capital letters. And it frustrates the dog out of me. And I think, I think you know, if, if I would just take the time to learn how to type, I would save so much time in my life because I spend so much time typing. But I never have. So instead, I'll type a sentence like that where I've hit caps lock and I'll either send it in an email and someone will think I'm yelling at them or I'll sit there and I'll think measurably. Huh, have I typed so much in capitals that it's worth the time for me to highlight that, to go toggle and to tell the computer to convert it to sentence case so that blah, blah, blah. Well, it takes 10, 15 seconds to think that plus another 25 seconds to do it. 
And so you sit there and you do the math and you think, no, I think I can delete this in about seven to eight seconds and then just spend 10 seconds retyping. Bottom line is, I'll spend five minutes trying to figure out how to save 15 seconds. (laughs) And ultimately, I'm just really glad there's a delete key. Now, those of you who are young have grown up with computers all your life. But there are people of my generation and before that when we were in high school and had to type a paper, our delete key was a bottle of whiteout. (laughs) Look, the first two years at my office, I had one of the best secretaries in the world. But she didn't want to move to a computer. She was happy with her IBM Selectric. And the day I made her go move to the computer, I, I knew she was trying to use it because I found all the whiteout on her screen. <laughs> Seriously, can you imagine how it would have been if your original job in this world had been being a scribe who's responsible for writing books? Until Gutenberg in 1450 invents the movable print type, every book had to be handwritten. I'm not saying you couldn't find a stamp that you could use for certain things that was carved. There would be a woodcut you could use, but the book itself is a handwritten book. The Bible was a handwritten Bible. Look, how many of you, let's, let's be honest, okay? Don't you go re- keeping your hand down if your hand belongs up. This is true confession time. How many of you have said at some point or another, I think this year I'm going to read through the entire Bible and you did not make it because you just petered out. I'm holding my hand up because I'm in that group. Okay. Can you imagine writing it? Can you imagine writing this entire book letter by letter? That's how we have the Bible today. People did that. And the way they would do it was either sit, stand there and Look at it and do it. Or if they needed multiple copies, they'd have someone read it and have 10, 20 people lined up to write it as someone stood up there and said, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are caught. And then Doofus on the third row says, can you slow down a little bit? Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. And then you've got Billy Bob Dipstick over here who says, Huh? Can't hear you. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Then Sally Sue on the front row, you're yelling at me. I mean, it's fraught with problems. But that's the way it was done. And if you think about it, get outside of your experience today and think about what they were missing when they were doing it. They were missing the nice environment of an office with their latte and their 
keyboard and their cell phone for distractions or to look something up on Google if they missed it. Obviously missing those things. But also missing the old switch on the wall for the old artificial light and lamp. They don't, they don't have good lighting to be reading this stuff. And you say, well, yeah, but they had windows. No, they're in buildings. Buildings back then had very small windows. It was a security issue. Big windows, easy crime because you don't have window panes. And so you don't have big windows. You've got dark areas. And, well, just light a bunch of lamps. You can't really just light a bunch of lamps. Most of them used olive oil as their oil. And, and the burn and the smoke and everything that comes to the smell from a bunch of lamps isn't going to help. Not to mention the expense. So they're used to doing this work in the dark. And when they make a mistake, they don't have an eraser. Heavens, they don't have pens the way we do. A scribe would make their own ink, taking soot for the carbon, mixing it with water and Arabica gum. And they'd make their own ink. And for a pen, they'd take a reed and they'd cut it down and where it would hold the, the ink but not hold it to just run all out. They could make a slit down the middle so that it came to a point with a slit down the middle and the ink could dribble out through the slit. And they'd keep dipping. If they needed red, they'd add red ochre, by the way, for the red ink. Yeah, red ochre. You don't know what red ochre is? Well, it's a good thing you don't make red ink for a living. So this is, this is what they were doing. Now, you, they, and they weren't wearing glasses. So they're in dim lighting, day after day, long days, with handmade ink and pen. And oh, did I tell you, if they mess up, they can't go to Office Depot and just buy another ream of paper. They have two kinds of paper. They had papyrus. Papyrus is a weed, not weed, reed. R-E-E-D. If we go to the Elmo, see if I can draw it here. Hold on, I'm going turn this a little bit so I can see it. Okay, so by the banks of the Nile, you've got these reeds that grow up. And they would harvest these reeds and they would cut them, if this is a, a reed, looking at it from the top. They would take that reed and they would do a thin cut, right like that. And then they do, here, you're missing it. A thin cut. And then they would do another thin cut. And they would take those thin cuts and they would lay them long ways together. So that you've got a kit, one and then another and then another and kind of paste them together. And then on the back, to make sure that they stayed together and had integrity, they'd paste some going the opposite way. Now, as a result, you could only write effectively on one side of the papyrus. But this is papyrus. 
we get the word paper from it. That was the original paper. There's not, I mean, it, it, that, that's what you got. If we go back to the Elmo, please. I mean, to the PowerPoint. So there, that was most of the writing. Some of the writing was on goat skin, animal skin, parchment. But I mean, what are you going to do? Hey, Ethel, I made a mistake. Can you kill another goat? Hurry up, tan that hide, please. I need about an eight and a half by 11 sheet. I got to get through Leviticus and the spelling on these names is outrageous. So that's, that's what they had. That's why if you're reading in the Greek this passage from Paul, when you come, he said to Timothy, when you come, bring the cloak I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books and above all the parchments. Books, the Greek word biblios, we get the word Bible from it, literally means strips of papyrus. So Paul says, bring my papyrus writings and also bring my parchments. Those are the animal skins. Now, what, what are we doing with this? Where are we going? Let me first of all say, I hope you've been to church. Because I hope you got a fantastic, inspirational sermon to sustain you through the week. I was teaching this at Jersey Village. I didn't hear it. But I would assume if it's like every other sermon that I've heard preached here, it was great. The reason I say that is, when I grew up, we did not call this life group. We called it Sunday school. Because, amen. Because there's, there's like um, church where you get the sermon and the preaching. But this was, had a bit more of an educational bent. So is Sunday school. So this morning, we got a lot of Sunday school. Now, lest you think, well, I just wasted my whole time. I don't want to learn anything about the Bible. I just want to feel better about life. I've thrown some of that in at the end. But you've got an okay to check out a little bit for some of this stuff. But I hope you'll not only find it interesting, but it will inspire you to understand how strong our understanding of the Bible is, that we've got a good text, and I hope also that it will, um, uh, that you'll enjoy this and, and get some more knowledge to file away. So here we're going to do it in three areas. I'm going to do three things with you. First of all, I want to show you some changes that have happened in the Bible. So wait a minute, changes in the Bible? Yes. And I want us to look at those together. And then I want to dig deeper to understand what's happened. And then finally, we'll get to the inspirational part. The so what? Why do I give a rip? Okay? So if that's what we're going to do, let's start by seeing the change. Here's your passage. This comes from the book of Jude. Jude is a real small, in this Bible, it's a one-pager. Real small letters sandwiched between Third John and the book of Revelation. So right there near the end of the Bible. Very few people spend much time reading and studying Jude. Very few sermons are preached out of Jude. It just doesn't happen much. 
If you get the online paper I wrote, I go into more detail about the book. Maybe I can do that next week, uh, depending upon uh, uh, how the week unfolds. But today, we're going to focus on verse 5. Here's verse 5. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Does that throw you for a loop? Here's King James. King James version of that verse says this. I'll therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Okay? Now, here's the New International Version, translation. I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt. And here is the English Standard Version. I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved his people out of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that did not believe. Do you see the difference? The Lord... The Lord, Jesus. Those are very different words in English. Those are very different words in Greek. Lord and Jesus. So, what you need to do is figure out what happened with this translation. Um, It's not playing, but I did have the Jeopardy theme song. I... So, that was enough of that. Well, if that's the case, do you know what else you missed the sound on? Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's... (laughs) Okay, meanwhile, back at uh, Jeopardy. We may have been in double Jeopardy. So, what happened with this translation? Okay, that's enough. Uh, What happened? So we're going to do three things in this class. We're going to see the change, and that's where we got to start. Then we're going to dig deeper. But let's, oh wait, we just saw the change. That is the change. (laughs) The change from Lord to Jesus. I got all distracted listening to my goat bleat. (laughs) Now is the section where we dig deeper. You have my permission to go to sleep if you don't snore out loud during this section. We'll wake you up when we get the inspirational part. If you snore out loud, don't sleep. Just doze, okay? Just kind of relax. That's why Mel sits on the front row. I don't know if y'all know. He sits on the front row so you don't notice it when his head goes back because he's looking up at me. And I love you for it, Mel. I'm joking. Mel has never gone to sleep, but it's good to have you back. All right, so here's what I'd like to do. I want us to put this into a time perspective. My timeline is of things that happened after Jesus, So this is A.D. I should have put A.D. on the slides, but I didn't have room. So for the first 400 years after Jesus, A.D., while the Roman Empire is thriving, people are making copies of the Bible. 
Now, why, you might say, uh, don't we have the original? Why don't we have the original letter from Jude? The original letter from Paul? Well, we don't because of a number of factors. Number one, papyrus itself isn't long for this world. It's basically a mashed up weed. Animal skin's not that long for this world, though it does typically last significantly longer. But remember in the Roman Empire, you have multiple periods of persecution when if you're caught with a Bible, you die. And the Bibles and the Holy Scriptures were collected and burned. Because the view was we can stamp out this religion if we stamp out their Bible. So under Domitian, under a number of different Roman empires, emperors, you had significant persecution. And scriptures are getting destroyed like crazy. But meanwhile, you've got people who are dedicated and diligent at trying to preserve the text. So they're making those copies. So these texts are being copied for the first 400 years. Then, once the Roman Empire falls in the 400 AD range, for the next thousand years, it's not really an issue. Why? Because most, 98% of the people couldn't read if they had one. It's called the Dark Ages for a reason. So we have a thousand years of our history, of our civilization. Where most people couldn't read the Bible, they don't have a Bible. And right as this is um, at the doorstep, the Dark Ages are at the doorstep, Jerome from a cave outside Jerusalem, translates the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures into Latin, the common tongue used by the people at that time in history. So the Bible's translated into Latin. That's what people speak. That's what the church used So the church uses the Latin Bible. It's called the Vulgate because the word vulgar in Latin just means common, ordinary, everyday. And so this is the common, ordinary, everyday tongue. And so for a thousand years, the church is only interested, their mass is in Latin, their scripture is in Latin, most people are speaking Latin, your learned people and the rest of them just go to church and don't know what's going on. And so there's, there's no question of, is this what Paul really wrote? Is this what Jude really wrote? It's not an issue. This is Jerome's Latin Bible that the church said, use this. And everybody said, well, the church knows and we'll do it. But then, in the 1500s, the world's different. Why? Because in 14... 1850, Johannes Gutenberg invented movable type. And now all of a sudden, you can mass produce books. The expense comes way down. Literacy goes way up. And everybody wants to read the Bible. It's the Word of God. 
Now the Bible's in Latin as it's first printed, but within 62 years, by 1512, there is a Greek version of the Bible put out. That is not the Greek of that. The Complutensia is the Greek version that came out in 1512. But in 1514, as I put on the screen, the notable edition by Desiderius Erasmus. I always say Desiderius, but I think it's technically Desiderius. But I don't know. He hasn't been around in a long time. I haven't asked him. Um, Erasmus put out, he was a Dutch scholar. And he put out a Greek New Testament. Is Sharon Rim in here today? Sharon, are you in here today? No. Charles Mickey, are you in here today? Is anybody in here today who works at uh, the Lanier Theological Library? Yeah, they don't go to church. <laughs> Just joking. Sharon uh, uh, Rim is a faithful member of this class and is normally here. If you want to go to the library, we've got a first edition of Erasmus's, the first real printed Greek text. We've got a first edition under lock and key, so you've got to ask for permission because you can't just like get it out if you're sitting there drinking coffee and you, it's just like a danger waiting to happen. But Erasmus translates the New Testament into Greek. Now, where does he get the manuscripts from? He tries to get some old ones. The Complutensia, which had done this as well, got manuscripts from the Vatican. But they don't know which ones. They don't know how old they were. Erasmus said, I'm going to get really old manuscripts. I want to go way back. I want to get as close to the original as I can. So he got manuscripts that date from 1100. I mean, he's like, that's 450 years ago. Yeah, but that's still a thousand years after it was written. And he doesn't have manuscripts for the whole Greek New Testament. So part of Revelation, he just translates it back into Greek from the Latin Bible. Because he doesn't have it. But that's the Greek New Testament. That, by the way, is the principal book along with one other edition. That, for, that book is, forms the, the text from which there are slight edits made by, in 1550 by a fellow named Robert Estian. He also went by Stephanus, is his last name. He, in his Greek New Testament, did something really bizarre. He broke it out into verses. And never had verses before. So he puts it into verses. He takes Erasmus's book, Greek New Testament, tweaks it a couple of places and puts it into verses. And that, my friends, Erasmus, uh, Estian, and Complutensia a little bit, is what the King James translators used. To translate the King James. The King James was translated out of not very old manuscripts, but fairly recent. 
Now, time continues to evolve, and everybody's growing in their knowledge, and the industrial revolution and the scientific revolution is taking place, and we're learning all sorts of things. And when you put that into Bible knowledge, somewhere around the 1800s, people said, hey, we need to go find, I'd love to find the original letter from Paul to the church at Rome. So they go over and they start looking for stuff. And there's this German scholar, Constantine Tischendorf from Leipzig, who, who says, I'm going to take a sabbatical and I'm going to go find old Greek manuscripts. We can do better than this. And he, in his journey, he goes to St. Catherine's Monastery on the steep, on the slopes of Mount Sinai. That monastery was built where, uh, started as a chapel built by Constantine's mother in the early to mid 300s. The oldest continuous monastery in the world. And Constantine Dischendorf goes there. And in Mount Sinai at night it gets cold. And so he's got a fireplace in his room. And they've got wood for him, and he puts the wood in there to light a fire to stay warm. Well, they didn't have the push-button gas things like mom's got. A mom's really good. You want to fire at mom's house? Man, she, bam, it's coming. Just, she hits a button. They did not have that, but they had some dried paper that he could use. And so he grabs the dried paper in the kindling pile and starts to light it, and he looks at it, and he realizes, that looks like old faded out Greek. That's the New Testament. Hey, Father so-and-so, I got these sheets in the kindling pile for starting fires. Can you find the rest of them? I'd like to borrow this, where it came from. And he found a book, Codex is what they called old books, of the complete Bible in Greek that dates from 350. So it's called Codex Sinaiticus because it was found on Mount Sinai. By the way, uh, you can see sheets in the British Museum. You can see sheets in Russia, in Leningrad or St. Petersburg. You can see a couple of sheets still at St. Catherine's Monastery, but uh, the, the, the monks got ripped off. <laughs> and it's the story of civilization. Now, so all of these early texts are being found. So you get two really bright fellows at Cambridge University. And they do something with the text that we do with laundry. They sort it into piles so you don't wash your blue jeans with your white t-shirts or you won't have a white t-shirt when you're done. These two fellows' names were Westcott and Hort. And they said, and this is in the 1800s, late 1800s, we're going to put together a better Greek New Testament than that which had been produced before because it's 300 years old and we found all these new manuscripts that go back hundreds of years before, even a thousand years before. We're going to do the best one. To do that, we've got to put these manuscripts into groups. 
into baskets. We've got to sort our laundry. And the reason you want to sort your laundry is because if you think about it, if we come to the Elmo for a moment, you've got a person here who is uh, writing, okay? And they are going to write a copy. So you've got the original. We'll put the original up here. Someone's got the original. And then let's say it's the original letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Well, first of all, I'd like my own copy, thank you very much. Can I borrow it? No, they're not going to let you borrow it. Write your own. So go get your sooty black ink that hopefully doesn't blob too much and get your paper or animal skins or whatever you've got and get to work. Well, a whole congregation would like the letter Paul wrote to them. Okay, let's get 20 people at a time and someone will read it. We'll make 20 copies at a throw. But all of those copies get made in that original we'll call or the original. Then this is copy A. Now the problem is when people are making a copy, sometimes they make mistakes. They'll read the same line twice. Or I'll say the principle and you'll think it's A-L instead of L-E. Or I'll say four, and you'll write F-O-R when I meant the number four. Or the reader's got a strange accent. You know, I, I'll never forget the first time someone showed and wrote this word down. Oh, I got a better one than that. I had a, a, uh, a we had a receptionist at the firm one time. Uh, she wanted to quit being a receptionist and be a uh, personal assistant, professional assistant, where they, a secretary is what we called them back then. And for some reason, they don't use that word anymore, so I don't mean to offend anybody, but that's what she wanted to be, is a legal secretary. And so uh, Jan Manning in my office decided that she would teach this young lady how to do so. Now, this young lady was uh, an immigrant, and English was her second language. And she was really, really working hard. Back then, we used to have dictation machines. So I dictated my letters, and she put them in the machine with the earplugs, and she'd type them up. And I got my first set from her, and I'm just signing them. I'm not checking them to proofread. And then I thought, well, I better, because she doesn't, you know, English is her second language and all. And I I looked down, and uh, um, this is the way she had the letter signed. Let me give a new sheet here. She had it signed. Because I had said very truly yours, but I just said very truly yours, and she heard virtually yours. And it didn't occur to her, because English was her second language, that Nobody's going to be signing this letter virtually yours. It's very truly yours. So I had to enunciate differently. So for all sorts of reasons, the original might have an error that, in it. I'm not the original, the, the first copy, copy A. Let's say someone's reading and a, a very typical error might be, instead of saying Jesus Christ... They get distracted and they say Christ Jesus. 
Now, these aren't changes that matter in your theology. God protected his word. The church had everything they needed. This is not like, oh, no, we can't rely. I mean, these you know, are, are, there's a misspelling. Or virtually, very truly yours turns into virtually. But whenever anybody copies A and makes copy B from that, Copy B will have all of the errors of copy A and maybe some more. So we've got thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these manuscripts now. And what they did is they sorted them out. And they said, we're going to sort these into four different baskets if we go back. The first we're going to call the neutral basket. Neutral in the sense that we can't say it came from here or there, but these seem to be the absolute oldest manuscripts. One example is a codex that was found in the Vatican archives. And so they call that codex, Codex Vaticanus. It was found in the Vatican. That dates also from the 300s. Very, very early. And we don't know where these came in. We do know that Constantine, the, the, the Roman emperor who became a Christian, ordered 50 copies of the Bible to be made that were the best people could do. And scholars suspect that Sinaiticus, perhaps Vaticanus, were in among those 50. But it's very carefully done. It's very well written. It had, a, you know, the, 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 the scribe was not a baseball, professional baseball player. Where, you know, you can't read their handwriting. You just can't. I can do Babe Ruth. You will not be able to tell the difference. It's just scribble. But, but this guy was writing well. And so you've got the scribe. So that's one group, one basket. And they put all that they thought belonged in there and there. And then they did a second basket of texts that they believe came from Alexandria, Egypt and areas of that influence. Alexandria, Egypt had the world's largest library at the time of Jesus. And it was a great learning place. It's where the Hebrew scriptures had been translated into Greek 200 years before Jesus. You had a massive learning center there, and it was a center for the early church. And so they had their copies, and there's a whole basket of manuscripts they found that say those seem to have descended from the Alexandrian basket. And that, that principal one, or a good example of one, is, is the Codex Ephraim, because it, 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 it is uh, uh, just... Uh, the best example that's often used in teaching on this stuff. The third basket was called the Western basket, the Western part of the Roman Empire. And, and it's often got extra notes added. Codex Bizi is, is one of the prime examples of this. Codex Bizi, if you're reading it in the book of Acts, it's got all this extra stuff added in, extra narrative. And, and it, it's like it's explaining stuff. And we don't know where it came from, but it, we don't think it was in Luke's original. Because it's only in this Western text. So you, you've got that as an example. And then the third was the Syrian basket. That's in the Byzantine or the Eastern part of the empire. And that includes the Syriac 
translation of the Bible, the Peshitta. It includes a number of different old sermons from old Greek preachers. Uh, John Chrysostom, who preached in the 300. We've got a bunch of his sermons. And he used that, that Byzantine text. Because we can see where preachers were quoting the Bible. And that gives us more insight into how the Bible read those passages. So scholars have all of this. So Westcott and Hort, they divide all of this up. And they put all of this out there. And then the question becomes, what is the best text? So I've studied out of three Greek New Testaments mainly. The first one on the left is called Nestle Allen. Nestle was, um, uh, uh, Eberhard Nestle was a German scholar uh, in the 1800s who set to put together the best text he could. And he used, I believe, Vaticanus as his main go-to and then would look at other manuscripts to see how they might change or alter and try and decide which one was original. And one of his students, Kurt Allen, took over when when, uh, Everhart died, Nestle died. So the Bible, the Greek New Testament became known as the uh, uh, Nestle Allen text. Now the middle one is the one I have on my phone. It's the 28th edition of Nestle Allen. It's just been in the last 10 years. They've got a 29th edition coming out. They're constantly tweaking it. And then the scholars at Tyndall House in Cambridge, England, last year produced the latest and greatest Greek New Testament. Uh, I'm... uh, it's pretty funny. I, 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 I think it's a credibility use maybe, maybe a detraction. But um, um, I tell you this for credibility purposes. If you read their credits for helping put it together, um, they, they have me listed in there. Because I was one of the ones trying to read through the old manuscripts to decide what was right. Now, they did not trust me with really important things like Jude 5. I got things like, how did Epaphroditus really spell his name? But his mother cares about that. And she and I are the only two. And, and, and so they issued a brand new edition of the best scholarship, of the best manuscripts that we possibly can have for the Greek New Testament. So now with that in mind, here's the issue. We were looking at Jude 5. King James said, Lord. NIV says, Lord. English Standard Version said, Jesus. So where is Jude 5 in all of this? Well, if you look at Codex Vaticanus, that old, with integrity, really good book, Out of the Vatican archives, on Jude 5, it says, Jesus. Then if you look at Codex Ephraimi, the the Alexandrian texts, by and large, say, Jesus. Now, the Western text has got mixed readings. It depends on which one you're reading from. Sinaiticus, for example, says, uh, um, Lord, 
but some of them also say Jesus. And the same is true for the Syrian. It's mixed. You've got both readings. So the writers in the, uh, whoops, who are putting these together, the first edition of Nestle Allen says, Lord. You say, but why? If the text indicates, because they don't just sit there and say, well, the text must be this because this is the oldest one. The oldest one can make mistakes that aren't in other ones from different areas. And so they also try to use common sense. And so common sense trumped those scriptures in their mind such that they said it's got to be Lord because Jesus wasn't alive at the Exodus. How could it be saying Jesus was responsible for the exodus and Jesus destroyed the unbelievers when Jesus hadn't born for 1,200 years. So some scribe just wanted to say Jesus is Lord and so instead of Lord, he put Jesus down there. But Nestle Allen edition 28, I said, no, it's Jesus. The original said Jesus. Tyndall House version, Jesus. English Standard Translation, Jesus. Let me tell you this. You sit there and you say, man, I don't get that. I don't understand how that could happen. After all, look, this is the word Lord in Greek is kurios. Okay, the word Jesus in Greek is Jesus. Who's going to mistake those? Well, by the 200s, names of God and references to God were being abbreviated in these manuscripts. And they were being written in all capitals. And the abbreviation is the first and last letter. So, Curios is abbreviated like this with a line drawn. That's the capital Kappa and the capital Sigma with a line showing it's an abbreviation. Jesus is abbreviated like that. Oops, not the bottom part. I just turned it into a Roman numeral. Sorry. Like that. See, they look real similar. And you're writing with bad ink that doesn't always flow great. And you're writing sometimes on papyrus that, that's got ridges in it because it's just a mashed together weed. And the ridges take the ink differently and they, your, your reed can, doesn't write as well. And all that's missing is the only difference is, is it this or is it this? And they're just real similar. Those two are the same. Just real similar. So the odds are that some scholar, is scribe, is writing it down. And it says Jesus the way the original did. But he's looking at it thinking, uh-oh, some doofus forgot that line. Or it's not as clear. Or I can't see in this light. Can you shine your iPhone on this? You know, like the old people do. I say old. My wife does it. Uh, so I'd like to say experienced instead of old. 
but they do this where they, they get that light on, on your iPhone and look at the menu in the restaurant because it's dark and they forgot their reading glasses. And I cannot believe I said my wife does that. My wife does that, but I should have never said that. I'm sorry, Becky. <laughs> Probably my wife does that just to educate those around her who might be having trouble reading and to keep them from feeling bad. Let's move on. We're digging deeper. So now we get to point number three. So what? Why is this worth our time? Well, first of all, it's worth our time to understand that people have spent their lives making sure we've got reliable Bibles. And we do. And don't let anybody say, well, there's 20,000 Greek manuscripts and there's 100,000 variations in them. Yeah, well, fine. That's where someone misspelled something or changed a word order. There's, this, is, this is substantively just... We have nothing any closer to the original than this. This is, this is incredibly reliable. But I go a step further. Who was Jude? The brother of Jesus. Yep, Jesus had multiple brothers. Likely his youngest brother was Jude. Jude's a very common name in the Bible. Uh, um, it's Judas, is the extended Greek version of the name. Um, Judah in Hebrew, Yehuda. Um, but, but Jude is the way we've anglicized the brother of Jesus' name so we don't confuse him with Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Jesus had a younger brother named Judas. Judas was a very common name. And so Jude, the brother of Jesus who wrote this letter, is uh, an interesting fella. Look at him in the life of Jesus. In the life of Jesus, it's Matthew 13, I think. Matthew 13, 57. Jesus is, starts in 53. Jesus finished teaching parables and he came to his hometown and he taught in the synagogue. They were astonished. Where'd this guy get this wisdom? Isn't he just the son of the carpenter? Isn't his mother Mary? Aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where'd he get all this stuff? Jude was one of those brothers who in Mark chapter... 3 verse 21 we read about Jesus has appointed his 12 apostles he's gone uh, uh, and he goes home and the crowd gathers around him so he can't even eat when his family heard it they went out to grab Jesus they were saying poor Jesus is out of his mind his family thought he'd Driven around the loop one too many times. His family thought he'd, he, he, he was, he'd gone crazy. He's got like some Messiah complex. Who does he think he is? Jesus? I mean, all of those lines get used. The brothers aren't at the foot of the cross. 
Mary, his mother is, who'd been told by the angel and who was more aware of the virgin birth than anybody else. But the brothers, Jesus, they don't believe in him. Until Jesus is killed, he is buried, he is resurrected on the third day, and he comes and he presents himself. And we know from his encounter with Thomas, he's willing to say, you doubt it's me, put your fingers in the nail holes. You can put your hand in my side where the spear came in. He cooks fish and he eats. It's not a ghost, it's not an apparition. Jesus is physically resurrected. Now, if I'm a brother, look, I have two marvelous sisters. But make no bones about it, they are not the Messiah. But I am willing to tell you, if one of my sisters dies like that and is buried for three days and comes back to life, she's going to make a believer out of me that she's not an ordinary human. I'm going to say, whatever you think you are. Jesus' family becomes not just, hey, I believe. I'm talking 100% sold out, devoted to Jesus, not as their brother, but as the Lord God himself. Jude writes of Jesus not as his brother, but as the Lord God himself. Jude starts out his book not saying, Jude, a servant, no, a brother of Jesus Christ and brother of James. He doesn't. He says, I'm a servant of Jesus the Christ. And I'm a brother of James. He talks about Jesus as his only master and Lord Jesus. He wants to remind him that Jesus saved them out of the land of Egypt. Because, well, you say, well, that was God. Yes, that's the point. Even his brother understood. And his brother wasn't doing this for the money. There was no money to be made. His brother will sacrifice his life as a martyr and die voluntarily rather than renounce the truth of this. Multiple brothers. The brother James, you read in the book of Acts, is a leader in the church in Jerusalem. They will die because Jesus is Lord. And we get so far removed from that. And we've got this Bible that we can pick up and read any time we want to. And we forget that people have given their lives and dedicated their lives and worked so hard and God has preserved these scriptures so much that we should treasure these things. This is a holy Bible that proclaims that Jesus is Lord. I, I'm, I, I'm amazed and, and I, it... it I want, makes, it inspires me to do better. So God bless you. I can't stand up and talk this morning after class. I apologize. If you've got questions, email me. But I've got to get out of town. But I want to end with the way the book of Jude ends. The brother of Jesus had this to say. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory and with great joy to the only God, 
our Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. See you guys next Sunday.